This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, we're seeing a flurry of activity across the nation as states jockey into position with the health insurance exchanges, even in those states who have declined to set up their own state-based exchanges. And in states like Texas and Oklahoma, the so-called red states, where opposition to the Affordable Care Act has been fierce, There are marketing campaigns underway now from various non-government sectors seeking to inform residents about the health care law. Blue Cross Blue Shield is going to offer plans in all 50 states in both the state-based exchanges as well as the federal exchanges. And the insurance company is focusing its promotional effort in those states deferring to the federal government where there is little or no promotion underway due to political resistance. Well, it's particularly important in those states like Oklahoma, where 20 percent of the population is uninsured, and most of the folks will qualify for some kind of subsidy on the exchanges. So getting the message out about Obamacare continues to pose perhaps the biggest challenge as we roll towards full implementation. And of course, they're still talking Congress about holding up the national budget on October 1st, if any of the budget has funds dedicated to the promotion of the Affordable Care Act. <laughs> Someday, Mark, this will all be a memory and uh, Not hopefully, a good one. hopefully near universal <laughs> insurance will be the law of the land. But it will be interesting to see how consumers navigate the exchanges after October 1st when they officially open for business. In Connecticut, Exchange Director Kevin Cunahan expects that we're not going to see significant participation in the exchanges until after the first of the year and more likely closer to the March deadline for signing up for the exchanges. That's when he thinks folks will get to either that comfort level or necessity level with the online insurance marketplaces. And they'll also be motivated by the promise of a tax subsidy as well. Uh, The bottom line here is that many millions of Americans who have existed outside the protection of decent health coverage will soon have the confidence of knowing they are covered both for preventative as well as catastrophic care. And Mark, there's one area that we really haven't spent a lot of time talking about on the show, but it's critical to patients and providers as well, and that's the entrusting of data to the system, the assurance of patient privacy. And that's something our guest today has been analyzing for years. Devin McGraw is director of the Health Privacy Project at the Center for Democracy and Technology. She'll be talking about their effort to promote legislation that will protect patient health data while also enhancing systems that will effectively share data to promote research and quality. Quality improvement. And we get to have another visit from Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org, who's always on the hunt for misrepresented facts in health policy. But as always, no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by Googling CHC Radio. And if you have comments or questions, please reach out to us at chcradio.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter because we love hearing from you. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's headline news. I'm Mariano here with these healthcare headlines. Michigan and Medicaid expansion. The state's leadership had originally refused expansion of Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act to include half a million uninsured low-income residents, but they've since changed their tune and recently voted to expand Medicaid in that state. The vote positions Michigan to become the largest state controlled by Republicans to support a major component of the new federal health care law. Governor Rick Schneider, a Republican for whom Medicaid expansion was a major priority, will sign the bill. Meanwhile, Medicaid expansion and the rural poor. It appears many will be left out in the cold when it comes to coverage. A study published in a recent edition of The Economist shows many of the nation's rural poor live in states that have opted out of Medicaid expansion to cover more low-income residents. 
More than half the nation's low-income residents live in these rural settings. Meanwhile, in Texas, where they're not expanding Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act, the move is going to generate close to a 10% increase in insurance premiums for the uninsured. About 1.3 million uninsured low-income or self-employed Texans would have qualified to gain coverage under Medicaid expansion. The premium hike is expected because folks in the low-income bracket tend to be less healthy, and their health care costs will have to be shouldered by the industry. Death by dental infection. It's a growing problem. A study in the recent issue of Endodontics shows a 40% increase in recent years in the number of folks entering the emergency room with critical dental infections, which can lead through the bloodstream to critical organs. The number of deaths due to dental infection rose significantly as well. The report showed dental infections accounted for hundreds of thousands of ER visits per year. And mirror, mirror on the wall, who is the longest lived of all? Good news out of the World Health Organization, women are living longer globally, but there's still much work to do. While life expectancy has grown globally for women around the world who are over 50, still far too many die early from preventable causes like undiagnosed early stage cancers and uncontrolled heart disease. While the report suggests more comprehensive preventive care is needed, we can look to Japan for some answers. There, women live on average longer than any other nationality. I'll have the seaweed and sushi, please. I'm Mariano here with these healthcare headlines. We're speaking today with Devin McGraw, Director of Health Privacy Project at the Center for Democracy and Technology, which is focused on developing workable privacy and security protections for electronic personal health information. Ms. McGraw was appointed by Health and Human Services Secretary Kathleen Sebelius to serve on the Health Information Technology Policy Committee, tasked with developing strategies to facilitate the use of health information technology to improve public health. Ms. McGraw holds a master's in public health from Johns Hopkins and a law degree from Georgetown, where she was the executive editor of the Law Journal. Ms. McGraw, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you very much. I'm very glad to be here. So, Devin, you've been at the forefront of one of the most fluid areas of health reform, and that's the protection of patient health data and privacy. And the High Tech Act, which was part of the stimulus bill, provided billions of dollars in incentives for hospitals and practices to make the switch to electronic health records. So help our listeners understand where we are with patient privacy. First, give us an assessment of the scope of changes uh, that has occurred in terms of electronic health record adoption and why these convergent policies to protect the privacy of patient health information are so vital to the success of building this new HIT infrastructure. Sure. I, I think people don't realize that efforts to reform the healthcare system really began back in 2009 with the enactment um, of the stimulus legislation, which included um, billions of dollars in tax incentives to facilitate the adoption of elect- and use of electronic medical records by healthcare providers, doctors, and hospitals. And we are well into uh, the implementation of that program, um, which began in 2011. And what we've really seen has been a pretty astronomical rate of of adoption, much more um, than was expected of uh, digital health records by hospitals in particular, um, and even physicians, you know, well more than half, I think well more than three quarters, in fact, of hospitals, of eligible hospitals have adopted, and, and physicians eligible for the program, we have about half of them. Um, having implemented uh, electronic health records, and that's a really good sign. But, but the uh, obviously the the 
the digitization of data that used to be kept uh, customarily in paper records um, raises a number of, of privacy issues uh, and security issues as well. And it's, it's not that we haven't had laws in place that have protected uh, health information, regardless of whether it's in paper format or in digital format. But when you digitize a record, it really magnifies the potential when a mistake or a misuse of a record occurs. So, you know, breach of, of records is a perfect example. Back in the paper record days, if you lost a paper file, you lost one patient's record, or a box of files might have been 20 patients' records. Now, if you have an issue with respect to data breach, it's often thousands or tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of patient records. So, so, so the magnitude of the potential for inappropriate access um, really increases with digital records. And so it was pretty critically important for Congress to address gaps in privacy rules at the same time that they um, provided a, a lot of taxpayer money in order to facilitate adoption of electronic records. Because at the end of the day, patients and, and healthcare providers as well, but the patients in particular need to trust that the information that's being uploaded or downloaded or shared electronically in, in these new uh, digital record systems um, it protects their privacy at least to the degree um, that it was protected in a paper-based environment. But Devin, you carry many titles, uh, but among them, you're the chair of the Office of the National Coordinator's Tiger Team, a, a <laughs> team that I don't think most of us uh, were aware existed, so we're going to want to hear more about that Tiger Team uh, and who else is on it. But the team has been tasked with finding workable solutions to a wide range of privacy and security issues that relate to this health information technology domain. Now, you recently outlined four key areas of health information technology that you think require very targeted attention in terms of privacy protection. Tell us about these key areas that you need think really need this particular focus and attention. Sure. I think four of the top areas are better education about what the rules are for protecting health data and also what patients' rights are with respect to their health information. Paying more attention to health data security, which has never been um, as much of a priority as it should be for the healthcare industry. Um, dealing with the fact that HIPAA doesn't cover all health data, that it only covers health data um, when it's in the hands of entities that, that are sort of part of our traditional healthcare system, right? Doctors, hospitals, health plans. But health data that's shared, for example, by a patient on the internet isn't covered by HIPAA at all. Um, and then uh, what are the rules for, for data analytics or analytic use of, of data that's collected initially for purposes of treating you, for example, but then the need to sort of examine that data in order to improve our healthcare system. We, and being able to sort of analyze treatment patterns and figure out what works best in what populations is going to really be critical to reversing those trends. And so those are, uh, those are the four areas. And the education piece cannot be underemphasized. It's really, really critical in the context of health privacy. We want to actually encourage the sharing of health data where doing so is going to improve the health of an individual and, and improve the health of populations. So it's, it's always easier and less risky to say, well, I'm worried about the privacy of that information, so I'm not going to share it. I'm going to keep it. I'm going to lock it up in a box because that's 
the only way I'm going to guarantee my patient's privacy. Oh, and by the way, I don't think HIPAA allows me to share it. Believe it or not, that excuse is used a lot. And that's not true. And it doesn't help the patient at all to have privacy be used as an excuse for not sharing information in circumstances when it should be shared. Patients have long had the right to be able to access their health information, but they're frequently told HIPAA doesn't let you. And that's not true either. On the other hand, you don't want to have the protections be used as a shield for data sharing in circumstances when you need it. The security issue, you know, the healthcare industry focuses a lot on delivering you good care and maybe less on protecting the information that comes out of that care because that's not necessarily what they have training and expertise in. And so as a result, we've seen a lot of breaches largely due to inadequate data security. If we want patients to be able to use technology tools robustly to help care for themselves, outside of the healthcare system, we need to have some protections for the health data that they may be uh, populating in healthcare applications or on uh, healthcare uh, social networking sites. And right now, um, HIPAA doesn't cover that data, which is something that I think a lot of people don't realize. HIPAA only covers information in your doctor's office at your hospital or at your health plan. And so, you know, we really need Congress to act to establish baseline protections for health data that exists outside of the environment that's covered by HIPAA. Devin, I want to sort of pull the thread a little on your comment about data breaches. And it it is clearly an area that's got lots of people, patients and as well as providers, very nervous. A day doesn't go by that I'm not reading the front page of either the New York Times or some other good paper around the country that I don't read about Edward Snowden and the sort of breaches that are going on uh, daily. So, But you've also noted that one in six patients will actually keep some data out of their electronic health record because they're afraid of discovery. So tell us what you think some best practices are. Is there an app for it in terms of uh, securing our data? Yeah, well, the the good news is, is that, in fact, there are technologies that keep data very secure. And right now, those technologies are encryption technologies, using encryption standards that are customarily required, actually, of government contractors, for example. I mean, encryption means that even if somebody is able to figure out your username and password and get into your account, they can't read or understand the data unless they actually have the encryption key. So encryption, encryption, encryption is, is the way to go. Healthcare has been very slow to adopt encryption technologies. And so when, um, as part of the stimulus legislation, Congress established a right for patients to be notified of breaches uh, of their healthcare information, they actually included an enormous incentive for the healthcare industry to encrypt by saying, hey, if you encrypt this data, then you don't have to notify of a breach incident because essentially there won't, nobody will have been harmed unless, unless you haven't used encryption properly. Somebody steals a laptop. That's a common occurrence in healthcare. Um, You don't have to worry about the data that's on the laptop actually being accessible and readable and understandable because it's been encrypted. Well, even with that incentive, which was established in 2009, we still see the healthcare industry very, very slow to encrypt data. An industry that I would point to that's been encrypting data for years is the financial services industry. Mm -hmm. You don't hear about breaches in the way that you do in health of banking credit card companies, for example. So, so they figured this out. <laughs> they figured this out, even though one could make an argument that the data that they hold, while definitely sensitive, is not as sensitive, at least in the eyes of some of us, as 
information about your healthcare. Um, and yet the healthcare industry, again, has been very slow to encrypt. And, and to be honest, I'm not 100% sure why. You know, when I have asked entities within the healthcare system why they don't encrypt, some of the common excuses are it costs too much, it slows down access to data. Those are two of the common reasons. When I come back to my encryption experts, they look at me like I have six heads, right? Because encryption maybe used to be expensive, but the mm -hmm. costs have been reduced significantly. And in fact, it's not that costly. So there's clearly a disconnect in terms of what, the, what technology is available out there and what's being adopted within the healthcare industry. And we're, and we're seeing that disconnect on a daily basis with respect to the breaches that have occurred. Um, uh, hopefully, we'll see um, a change in that regard, but I'm, I, I, you know, it's definitely been slow in coming, and so therefore, you know, data security remains uh, a big priority. Well, David, it has been uh, just unprecedented how fast things have changed. Mark and I were recently at a, a national meeting of community health centers. I think the figure that was quoted was more than 90% yeah. of the 1,100 health centers across the country are uh, completed or in the midst of implementing electronic health records. And we probably implemented it maybe seven years ago in our organization, but Kaiser Permanente and the VA, of course, have more than a decade of experience in that arena. What do you point to in terms of the success of electronic health record and this technology in improving the health not just of individuals in healthcare, but the population as well, and improving quality overall? I would say a couple of things in response to that question. One is that there, there definitely are pockets of evidence that, in fact, moving to digital records um, improves care coordination, which has an enormous impact on the quality of care, um, as well as ultimately on costs. But I think the evidence on cost savings in the use of electronic health records we have not seen it yet. Uh, and there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, one is that the very early stages of the stimulus program focus primarily on getting people just to do the initial steps on the adoption curve, to buy the system and to populate it with the data, and to start using it at least internally in delivering care for your patient. And to some extent, that's going to result in an uptick in costs because diabetics, for example, who haven't been getting their foot exams, now we have an electronic record system that is going to be able to identify who they are for the physician, which results in more care. Now, we're playing a little bit of catch-up in terms of the electronic systems identifying patients uh, and getting them the care that they need. But later stages of the incentive program are focused on actually sharing data for care coordination, making sure that transitions in care, such as when a patient leaves the hospital, that all of the information about their medications, what kind of care they received in the, in the hospital, can in fact be acted on and are acted on in order to ensure that they don't end up back in the hospital um, where, where more costs can be incurred. So we may be sort of seeing a, a, some short-term increases, but over the long term, um, we should be able to see decreases in care. And in fact, some of the systems that have been operational with healthcare records for a longer period of time, like Kaiser Permanente, like the VA, are already um, showing the evidence and have been showing the evidence for uh, quite some time on the value of deploying um, electronic medical records. The, uh, the other evidence I would point to is, which, which, and it's evidence that makes me really excited about this next phase of, meaning, of, of the high-tech, the, the 
financial incentive program for electronic medical records, it, it is the ability of patients to get their data and to get it in a form that's usable for them, that, that they can take action on it. We're speaking today with Devin McGraw, Director of the Health Privacy Project at the Center for Democracy and Technology, which is focused on developing workable privacy and security protection for electronic personal health information. Ms. McGraw was appointed by Secretary Kathleen Sebelius to serve on the Health Information Technology Policy Committee, tasked with developing strategies to facilitate the use of health information technology to improve public health. I want to let our listeners think a little more about and hear from you about HIPAA, which is the uh, acronym H-I-P-A-A for the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. You were pretty clear earlier, look at if I put it out on Facebook, it's available to the public. But if I give it to my provider, it's private information. So talk to our listeners who are consumers a little more about what the red letter issues are around HIPAA, but also to some of the practices who you mentioned a little earlier really are kind of afraid of sharing this data. And what do you see helping move them forward in a very litigious regulatory environment where they just may be too darn scared to share that information? Yes. So HIPAA, which I think, you know, to the extent that people are aware of it, they're probably aware of it because they get that HIPAA notice when they go into their doctor's office. And probably most of the time they don't read it unless they have a lot of time to kill in the waiting room. But HIPAA is, you know, in the view of of someone like me who's a privacy advocate, HIPAA is a wonderful law. It, It really sets some boundaries for how your doctor and the hospital that you might go to and your pharmacy, there are specific rules that they need to follow about what they can and cannot do with health data that they collect from you as part of their day-to-day operations. And, and while the rule is not perfect, it certainly is far better to, to have those rules in place than to have the type of environment that patients face when they do health searches on the Internet, for example, or they put um, share um, health information on Facebook because it's valuable to them to be able to network uh, with other people who have their disease, or they're using a mobile app to um, manage their health care. Those technologies are not covered by HIPAA. It, it wasn't an oversight by Congress. It's just an artifact of, of HIPAA really being about um, getting the healthcare industry to use standardized claims and to bill electronically. And so it was never enacted as an overarching privacy law. It was enacted to facilitate digital claims uh, so that we could get out of using paper to bill. And the privacy rules, as a result, only apply to the entities that are within that ecosystem. And so when you, as an individual, are entering health data into the, the less regulated marketplace, it's really incumbent on you to read the policies of the entities with whom you're sharing data. So whether you download a health app on on your phone or you use a social networking site and you're going to populate it with health data or or you're just using a search engine on the Internet to search symptoms. 
the extent of your protections are in that privacy policy. And if you read it and you don't understand it or you see information sharing language in there that makes you uncomfortable, your recourse is really not to use it. So it really is up to you to be, I, I call it being aware before you share. Now, in terms of getting your data from your healthcare providers, you're exactly right that a lot of providers are really reluctant to do this. Some of them genuinely think that HIPAA doesn't allow them to share data with patients, and, and others would just prefer not to share data with patients out of fear of what the patient might do with that data. Uh, and the reality is, is that providers don't have the, um, the ability to say no. HIPAA gives patients a right to their information, and when you make a request, they need to comply with that request within 30 days. But at the end of the day, if, if you go to your healthcare provider and you ask for a copy of your record uh, and they say no, they are wrong. And you do have, uh, you can complain actually to the Office for Civil Rights, which is in the Department of Health and Human Services, that your HIPAA rights have been violated because that information, you have a right to access it. But at the end of the day, what's really going to move the needle on patients being able to access their data is when more and more physicians and hospitals realize that, you know, sort of patients are partners in delivering good care, and it's actually to their advantage to provide patients with their data because most patients don't sue, right? Patients want to get their data because they it's about them and it's relevant to their health care. And at the end of the day, most providers that have taken steps to look at patients as equal participants in their care and, and provide information regularly you know, really see the gains in terms of how well their patients do and how their patients feel about, um, about the doctor-patient relationship. It makes a difference, and it makes a positive difference in most circumstances. We've been speaking today with Devin McGraw, Director of the Health Privacy Project at the Center for Democracy and Technology. You can learn more about her work by going to cdt.org. And Devin, thank you so much for joining us on Conversations on Healthcare today. Thank you. Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of FactCheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? Well, Representative Louis Gohmert claims that a poor guy out there making $14,000 is going to suffer under the Affordable Care Act. Gomer wrongly says a person earning that amount would pay extra income tax, quote, if he cannot afford to pay the several thousand dollars for an Obamacare policy. But this so-called poor guy would be eligible for Medicaid or heavily subsidized private insurance, depending on where he lives, and he can't be penalized if he decides he can't afford it. The law expands Medicaid to include those earning up to 138% of the federal poverty level. $14,000, the figure Gomert uses, is 122% of the poverty level, making this hypothetical person eligible for Medicaid. Of course, not every state is going to expand Medicaid. 21 states are opposed to the expansion, including Gomert's home state of Texas. In those states, someone earning $14,000 would be eligible for significant federal subsidies to help pay for private insurance on the exchanges. 
But if this person decides not to buy that insurance, he can't be subject to a tax penalty for not doing so. He's eligible to receive a hardship exemption from the individual mandate. The Department of Health and Human Services published a final rule on July 1st that said anyone who is ineligible for Medicaid because a state decides not to expand it would be exempt from the requirement to have insurance. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. When Derek Kayongo was a young refugee living in Africa, he learned the true meaning of survival. child of war can be simply described as a kid caught between a rock and a hard place. It's finding all your pieces and trying to put them back together. Rescued by an aid organization and brought to the United States, he knew he had to do something to make a difference in the lives of those many children left behind children displaced by war, orphaned by disease, living in extreme poverty. 2.4 million children die each year from lack of access to basic sanitation. We have about 2 million kids that die of sanitation issues, mainly because they don't wash their hands. And when Kayongo learned that hotels around the United States dispose of 800 million bars of soap every year, he knew that was a resource to tap into. Housekeeping. 800 million bars of soap that the hotels throw away in the U.S. alone every year. He founded the Global Soap Project. The discarded soaps are gathered and processed at a plant that sanitizes, melts, and reforms new bars of soap that will be distributed around the world to children and families living in poverty or in disaster zones like Haiti. And with it, the children are given lessons in basic hygiene, some learning for the first time how to thoroughly wash their hands and why. The Global Soap Project earned Koyungo the distinction of one of CNN's hero finalists, and he was also a winner in the annual Classy Awards, which support philanthropic work that improves health and wellness around the globe. A simple idea, repurposing the waste of soap and providing one of the most simple tools of hygiene to those in need around the world, now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center.